night. Good to see so many people today. Glad you are here. If you would turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. That would be great. We're near the end of the chapter. In our series on bringing back the wanderer, we'll be looking today at John 20, verses uh, 24 through 29, and the we're looking at one of the apostles. So, if you uh, have turned there, that would be great. Uh, let's uh, listen carefully as this is God's word. John 20, verses 24 through 29. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Gospel of John this morning to learn more about the heart of Christ for people who doubt. Lord, we ask you this morning to give us the grace to see the gentleness of Jesus to bring back the wanderer. In this passage, you give us words of faith, words of hope, and most of all, words about God's love for people who think it's too little and too late for them. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and open our ears to hear and our minds to know and our hearts to believe. And so we pray, speak through the story of Thomas and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Some people have become so associated with one of their characteristics that it's become part of their name. So much so that we're likely to remember their name even if we can't remember their story. And to see this, we're going to play my version of the name game. So, I want you to fill in the name that goes in the blank. Little Orphan Annie. Blank the Kid. Billy. Calamity. Too Tall all right, got some football fans in here. Buffalo, okay. Blank the Ripper. Doubting. Last one's probably the easiest one. Doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas. For 2,000 years, his name has lived on, but is he known for his heroic missionary efforts? Is he known for his great faith? No, his claim to fame comes from one well-recorded instance here in John 20. 
Thomas doubting the claims of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thomas is universally known as doubting Thomas. And that may be a tad unfair. We're quick to hold Thomas up as an example of what not to do. But my gut feeling is most of us identify with Thomas a little bit. And we identify with his doubts probably more than we care to admit. And maybe we're a little hard on Thomas because he pushes against a part of our lives that we don't want to be reminded of. Now, if you're a Thomas in hiding, or not, um, then perhaps today you'll learn enough from him to address your doubts head on. After all, Jesus dealt with him so calmly and so gently that Thomas developed such a strong faith that he took the good news about life in Christ all the way to India. However, before we get too far, we have to realize there isn't one type of stereotypical doubter. All doubting is not created equal. Doubt has different triggers in different people, which means there's different types of doubters. And so if we're going to seek after the doubtful wanderer, then we need to know what fuels their doubts. Because when you're wandering in the darkness, doubting comes easily. But it doesn't come in the same way. And it doesn't take the same form for every person. But it does have the same result in that it keeps people away from Jesus. And so I've listed four kinds of doubters. It's in the uh, sermon outline and it's online. You want to look at that. But uh, first is the intellectual doubter. This person is the thinker, the more academic type, the one who says believing requires information I don't have. I've got questions, I've got problems, I've got issues, I need more information. This person is looking for evidence, evidence for the existence of God, evidence for creation over evolution, evidence for miracles, evidence for the resurrection, evidence for the reliability of the Bible. And to be honest, there's tons of resources out there on how to provide that evidence and how to answer those questions. The reality is very few of these people are actually wanderers. Most of them have not come to the faith yet. Very few people ever leave the faith for purely intellectual reasons. Some intellectual types are honest about it, and when they get the answers, they come to faith. Josh McDowell and R.C. Sproul both fit that category. This is how they came to faith, and each of them wrote books on how best to answer the questions. But sometimes the intellectual doubter uh, may be intelligent, but not honest. He's using all the questions as a screen to keep Jesus away. And here we have to push them to answer some hard questions. Are they lacking information they don't have, or are they lacking information they don't want? There's a lot of people who keep God at a distance because either they don't believe there are answers and aren't willing to look at the evidence, or they don't want the answers because intellectual doubt isn't the real problem. And the real problem is they've become a wanderer because they're actually 
the willful doubter. The willful doubter, that's the second one. This person struggles with faith because they know in order to believe, in order to follow Christ, then I have to make some changes that, quite frankly, I don't want to make. And Romans 1.18 tells us that willful doubters, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They know what they're doing is wrong. But they don't realize what it's costing them in terms of peace with God now and eternity with him later. The problem with willfully doubting the gospel, willfully doubting the scriptures, willfully doubting the truth, willfully doubting Christ, is they don't want to answer to him. And they surely don't want to have to explain what they're doing. It is this type of wonder we most often see in the teen and college years. They begin to question the faith because they know they can't reconcile what they profess with their own behavior. And they're not willing to change their behavior. This has led to what has become known as the Tim Keller question. I don't know if he likes that or not, but we all use it. So, And basically he says when a student comes home from college and expresses doubts about the faith, he'll often just look at them and ask, who are you sleeping with? Because it's easier to stop believing than it is to repent and believe the gospel. And so many students who've grown up in the church, even some in this church, have done this very thing. They've gotten caught up in some sort of sin. Often they'll profess to be a victim, blaming someone else for their actions, and end up doubting the goodness of God. And usually they'll act as if they're fine now, but will refuse to acknowledge that they have hurt everyone around them, but most especially their parents. That's the willful doubter. Another type of doubter is the disillusioned doubter. This is the person who adopts societal and cultural problems and not only owns them, which is usually good, but makes them personal, which is usually not good. Often this person is overwhelmed by all the problems of the world. If God is real, why is the world so messed up? If God is real, why is there so much evil? If God is real, why does he allow so much suffering? If God is real, why is there so much injustice? And sometimes people question God because they've taken a societal issue and made it a personal issue. For example, racial injustice is treated as a uh, personal attack. Now, hear me carefully. I don't want to downplay racial injustice or any type of injustice. But it's one thing to raise your voice against injustice, and Christians have been doing that for centuries. But it's another thing to claim it as an injustice against yourself. And we've seen that a lot in recent years with political issues, with racial issues, with the pandemic. And we've made it personal, and we've went and wound up using it as a weapon against the church, against other Christians, against God. And as best I can tell, it never helps the person doing it. It leaves them more frustrated, more angry, more hurt, more disillusioned, and they often start wandering away from the church, from other believers, and away from the faith. Finally, and I think most common, and what we're going to focus on the most today, is the disappointed doubter. 
the disappointed doubter. This is the person who can't see their way past personal pain and suffering. They're generally not considering any of the arguments or any of the evidence because they've been badly hurt and there's no one to blame but God. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I posted something online about how much God loves us. And a friend of one of my children responded to the post by saying, God loves us? I don't think so. God is a monster. If God loved us, he wouldn't have let my sister die. And so after taking a deep breath, I responded with something like, I'm so sorry, would you like to talk about it? And he said, no, what's there to talk about? The church doesn't have any answers for this. And so as gently as I could, I wrote back again, and this is all online, so it's all, lots of people can see it. And I said, and I honestly, I don't remember my exact words, and I tried to look it up, and it's just buried Facebook past somewhere. Um, but I said something like, well, actually, there are answers for this. It is not a new issue, and the church has been addressing it for thousands of years. It's called theodicy, and it tries to answer the question, how can a good God let bad things happen? And then I gave him a list of a few resources and offered to meet with him. And his tone changed immediately, answered prayer. And he said, I had no idea that there were answers out there. Let me look into them and I'll get back to you. I never heard from him again. This may be one of the most common issues that the disappointed doubters have. Not just what does God do about suffering, but what can God do about my suffering? What can God do about my pain? What can God do about my doubts? Well, to answer that question, we need to take the time to look at a hurting person. And to be honest, there's a lot of them in the Bible, but one of them is Thomas. So let's turn to our text and see what the Bible actually says about this. And the first thing we see about Thomas is that he was the absentee. The absentee, that should be the first blank in uh, the bulletin if you're doing that and doing the the fill-in-the-blank thing. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We have to look at the phenomenon here that Thomas was absent Jesus, on the evening of his resurrection, has appeared to Mary Magdalene, then he appeared to John and Peter, and now he appears to the ten disciples. Judas, of course, isn't there, and Thomas is missing. Ten disciples are in the upper room. We find this at the beginning of chapter 20. And there's, first of all, there's one obvious lesson uh, here in that being absent, for whatever reason, Thomas missed the blessing. I think it's a fair deduction to draw from the evidence of Scripture. He wasn't there. He missed the blessing. What did he miss? He misses a resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now, you never know what you're going to miss if you don't show up. David Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say again and again, you know, 
We pray for revival. We pray for the outpouring of God's Spirit. And one day, that will come in the way it came in the middle of the 18th century. And again, in the middle of the 19th century, he's praying in the middle of the 20th century. And it could come, and you're not here. And you'd be kicking yourself for the rest of your life. And just a thought. Don't miss the means of grace. Don't miss the assembling of God's people. Now, in order to understand Thomas's absence, I think we need to examine a little bit of what the scriptures say or doesn't say about Thomas's character. The first account of Thomas is in John chapter 10, which is a story of raising Lazarus from the dead. News comes uh, to Jesus and the disciples that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is deathly ill. And everybody expects he's going to immediately go to him. And he doesn't. Instead of going to visit them, he decides to continue with his ministry in Judea for several days, completely puzzling the disciples. We read in John 11, verse 4, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, Lazarus died. And then Jesus says, now, let's go to Bethany. And disciples are like, I don't know what's going on. They're a little unsure. And they say to Jesus, in effect, the last time you went to Bethany, they tried to stone you. And so at this point, that John interjects the first words that we have from Thomas. So first of all, we know he's not a coward, because he's the guy who says, John eleven sixteen. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And it appears that he meant it. Now, you can interpret that as pessimism or as gloom, or you can look at those words and see despair written all over them. Everything is dark. If we go back to Bethany, we're going to get stoned, we're going to get killed, let's just go and get it over with. But it's also possible to interpret Thomas's words in a different way because the evidence seems to show that in going back to Bethany, Jesus may, in fact, face what he's faced before. And you have to admire Thomas's courage, his willingness to stand for Jesus and for the cause of Christ, and his willingness to go even if it means it's going to cost him his own life. You have to admire that. Being a disciple of Christ means laying down your life. You know, that's what it takes to be with Jesus. You have to admire that commitment. This is not a starry-eyed romantic. He's very realistic. And as far as Thomas is concerned, if they go back, it could cost him his life. And I think you have to admire that. We don't talk about courage much anymore in our culture, but apparently Thomas has it. So that's the first time we see Thomas. He shows up again in John 14 in the upper room. Jesus has told the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he says, you know uh, the way to where I'm going. And that leads to his famous statement of I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And it's at that point that Thomas makes his second contribution in the Gospels. In John 14, 5, Thomas said to him, Lord... We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Well, there's a totally honest man. The rest of the disciples seem to be just as perplexed, but only Thomas speaks up. We all know people like that. 
If they don't understand it, they're not going to let it go. They keep asking until it makes sense. That's Thomas. He's thoughtful. He's not easily stampeded. He's not going to make a profession of faith unless he believes it to be true. Let all those other people have that glib, easy faith that comes without reflection and deep thought. Not Thomas. His faith is one through the agony of personal struggle. And essentially, Thomas is saying, we'll, we'll never get to where you're going. We'll lose the way. We don't know how to get there. And whatever else you think about Thomas, here's a man who loves Jesus. Here's a man who wants to be with Jesus. And the thought that concerns him the most is there's going to come a time when he won't be able to be with Jesus anymore. And the thought of Jesus' absence, the thought of not being with Jesus, is something that immensely bothers him. Now, we can psychoanalyze the passage, and uh, lots of people have done that. And you can interpret gloom and despair and say that he was slow, or that he's the lesser twin, or you can do all the psychobabble on Thomas. But I have to say that evidence is very slim. The one clear, indisputable thing about Thomas is his love for Jesus. He loved Jesus, and the thought of losing him caused him great pain. The thought of not being with Jesus anymore is something that distresses him. Now, Thomas wasn't there on that first evening in Jerusalem when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. And that's the next passage in which he's mentioned. He's not there. Why isn't he there? That's the big question. Why isn't Thomas there? What's he doing? Where is he? And it is so tempting to allow yourself to say something like, you know, Thomas was brooding. Thomas was lost in the depths of depression. Thomas was engulfed by clouds of darkness. And he wanted to wallow in self-pity. And he didn't want to be in the company of others, least of those who would be asking him all kinds of questions. He just wanted to be in his own company. You know, misery likes its own company. We all deal with our emotions differently. Thomas's grief had driven him to go off by himself. He had probably broken down under the pressure of the last few days. And his way of dealing with problems was to be alone. He wasn't one to act like he believed when he didn't. All of that makes for a great sermon but the evidence is very slim. We are not told why Thomas was not there. For all we know, there was a lot of traffic that night, and he just missed it. The only thing we know for sure is that he wasn't there. The Bible doesn't tell us why. And he misses a great blessing, whatever the reason. It may have been due to his personality. It may have been psychological or emotional or spiritual or some combination of all three. There's all kinds of explanations. It may have been sheer stubbornness. But all we know for sure is that he wasn't there. Because he wasn't there, he missed a great blessing. Because if he were there, there'd be no need for the next verse. Verse 25, which shows Thomas as the skeptic. It says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is the doubting of Thomas. 
Now, according to J.I. Packer, Thomas is guilty of what he calls willful skepticism. It's all well and good for the other ten disciples to say that they had seen Jesus, but they didn't ask the hard questions. Willful skepticism. There's no sense that Thomas hopes the disciples are right. He just refuses to give them the benefit of the doubt. He places this undue burden on Jesus to prove himself. And he believes he has good reasons for his position. And so when the disciples come to him and say, hey, we've seen the Lord, he says, no, unless I see the mark of the nails, unless I put my finger into the mark of the nails, unless I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, I can't imagine what's going on in Thomas's head. It's absent on a Sunday or Sabbath. Eight days have gone by. Think about the torment that he's going through. He's been a disciple for three years. And all of a sudden, for all practical purposes, his life has come to an end. It just feels that way. What's the future? Think about it. You know, when you get bad news, when somebody calls you into the office and says, look, I'm sorry, but we've got to let you go and you had dreams and aspirations and hopes, and all of a sudden you don't know which way is up. All kinds of things flood into your mind. Can you imagine the stress on Thomas at this time? I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what he's doing. He's probably off by himself trying to figure out what he's going to do with the rest of his life. We tend to forget what it was like on that first Easter. It's worth asking ourselves, if we had been there, would we have believed or would we have doubted? Or put the question another way, what would it take to convince you that someone you loved has come back to life after being dead for three days? Suppose it was a close friend or a family member. You saw them die. What would it take to convince you? Could you be convinced? Rising from the dead isn't common. If we had been there in Jerusalem with Matthew, James, and John, would we have believed all these strange rumors? In answering that question, it helps to remember that those, uh, to remember how those who knew Jesus best reacted at first when they heard the news. None of the disciples believed it at first. Luke 24. Verses 10 and 11, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Quite simply, they're not expecting a resurrection. Now it's true that Jesus had predicted that he'd be put to death and raised to life, but his followers didn't get it. Resurrection's the furthest thing from their mind. Forget his predictions. Forget all that brave talk. They had given up. Who expected a resurrection? Not the disciples. It's the Jewish leaders who persuaded the Romans to seal the tomb. It's the enemies of Jesus who feared that something might happen. His friends weren't expecting anything. So these guys are all confronted with sorrow and tragedy. Now, there's two ways, generally, of dealing with sorrow and tragedy. 
Some of us seek comfort in the company of friends. We want people around us to help talk it out. Others prefer to be alone with their thoughts. Such, it seems, was Thomas. If it's true that Thomas realized more than the others what's going to happen in Jerusalem, then it's also probably true that he was deeply hurt. He wasn't with the disciples because his heart was broken. Everything he had, he'd given to Jesus, and Jesus had died. And he still loves, still cares, still wants to believe, but his heart is crushed. He's not a bad man, nor, I think, is his doubt sinful. Deep inside, I think he wants to believe. We need not put Thomas down too hard. We have all been there, or we all will be. Now, some people are satisfied with the testimony of others, and some aren't. Thomas wasn't. Did he doubt the truthfulness of the others? I don't think so. He may have known that they believed they'd seen Jesus, but that wasn't enough. He couldn't live with a second-hand faith. He had to see for himself. When he says, unless I place my hand into his side, I will never believe, there's a lot more than doubt there. There's love and sorrow and pain and hurt and a tiny grain of hope. Thomas stands for all time as the one man who most desperately wanted to believe if he could only be sure. Can you blame him? Would you have been any different? Maybe, maybe not. Which means that Jesus would come to you the same way he came to Thomas. And we see that Thomas moves from being the skeptic to being the challenged. The challenge verses 26 and 27. There's an answer for Thomas and there's an answer for us. The Lord gave Thomas time to think about the situation. It says eight days have gone by. And Thomas did just that, and now he's with the other disciples. And maybe he became convinced of the resurrection before we got to verses 26 and 27. During that eight days, we don't know, we're not told. But eight days later, we read, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He's with the disciples. The doors are shut. Now Jesus appears. Initially, he utters the same words as he did when he appeared to the other ten disciples earlier in the chapter. He says, peace be with you. But then Jesus immediately speaks to Thomas. He says, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So who told Jesus? Who's been talking? We don't know. Probably no one. Jesus just knew. I think that's a frightening thing and a reassuring thing all at the same time. Jesus knew what Thomas said to the disciples because he knows everything. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your concerns. He knows your doubts. And if the commentators are right, he knows your skepticism. He knows your stubbornness to admit that you're wrong even when you know you're wrong. And people are telling you that you're wrong. 
and you're just trying to justify yourself so when it all comes out in the end, you'll at least look back as you're the one who asked all the right questions. And Jesus goes straight for him. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. I don't think we should be too critical of Thomas's demand for evidence. Didn't Jesus, when he appears in the upper room to the ten disciples, uh, what does he tell them? What does he show them? Back in verse 20, uh, earlier in the chapter, when Thomas was not there, Jesus showed him what? His hands and his side. And it's only after the disciples had seen his hands and his side that they believed and rejoiced. It's not as though Jesus is saying that asking for evidence is wrong. It's part of the reason that he appears again and again and again. He's giving a testimony. He's given evidence for the resurrection, for the reality of his risen body. And I think we see here something of the gentleness of Jesus. I don't think he's shaming Thomas. I think this is, Thomas, if this is what you want to see, if this is the evidence you need, here I am. Put your finger here in the hole in my hand. Put out your hand. Put it in my side, this side. Because that's where he had been stabbed. Isn't that how Jesus deals with us? Even with our stubbornness or with our foolishness? One of Jesus' attributes that we love and admire is his gentleness. He knows our faults. He knows what we're made of. And whatever the reason for Thomas' absence and the demanding of evidence and whether that's right or wrong, Jesus accepts it. We see something here of the compassion of Jesus. And what he's saying to Thomas, there is a heart that loves Thomas. A heart that wants to see Thomas fully believe. And so he's telling him, Thomas, don't come in unbelief. Come with faith. Come with trust. Come to me. It's worth noting that Jesus knew about his doubts. He knows the storm going on in Thomas's heart. And he comes just so Thomas can be sure. And he doesn't put him down. He said, go ahead, all of you who wonder if it's true, see for yourself. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Here is the wonderful truth. Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Now, maybe you think I'm psychoanalyzing a little bit here. Maybe I am, because the evidence for uh, anything about Thomas is slim. But one thing is clear. There's no lectures. There's no real rebuke of Thomas. And it's the same for you, whether you're a weary soul, confused soul, troubled soul, questioning soul, whatever you are, whatever it is that you're thinking, Jesus is saying to you, come to me. Come to me with your questions. Come to me with your concerns. Come to me with your doubts. Come to me with your demands. And I will be able to answer all of them. In the history of the Christian church, the greatest doubters have often become the strongest believers. That's why the story of Thomas is in the Bible. So that honest doubters might be encouraged to bring those honest doubts to the empty tomb. Thomas did, and his doubts are washed away by the person of Jesus Christ, alive from the dead. And so we see Thomas the believer, verses 28 and 29. Thomas the believer 
and apostle. Now, Thomas may have been slow to believe, but he's not slow to grasp the implications of Christ's resurrection. Because in verse 28, after all the rest of us have finished all of our psychoanalysis of Thomas, he says these extraordinary words. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that anyone has greeted Jesus in that way. Whatever doubts, whatever concerns, whatever frustration, whatever anger, whatever unbelief, whatever it was on Thomas's mind for those eight days, it is all gone now. Because all he can see is Jesus. Faith has been reborn A heart that beats by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit has been reborn in Thomas. And Jesus is not only his Lord, but his God. The evidence is palpable, substantive, and clear. And Thomas' faith rests on a solid rock. Now, the reason Thomas needs to see the risen Christ physically is not because he needs to see it in order to be a believer. As a believer, Thomas does not need to physically see the risen Christ with his own eyes. But as an apostle, he does. He can be a believer without physically seeing the resurrected Jesus, but he can't be an apostle. And the meeting that Thomas missed the week before, that's the one where we read Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. If you go back to that incident, you'll see what's so important. They are commissioned as apostles. This is not just some ordinary, there's no such thing as an ordinary resurrection appearance. It's not routine. But this one's extraordinary. Because there's a commissioning here. Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit. He gives them the message. He gives them authority to tell people how their sins are going to be forgiven. He's commissioning them as apostles, and Thomas missed it. And that's why Jesus comes to Thomas. You see, to be a believer, you shouldn't have demanded this, but as an apostle, he has to have it. To be an apostle, you have to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. A little later in the book of Acts, when they pick a replacement for Judas, that's the requirement, Acts 1.22. One of these men must become with us as a witness to his resurrection. But Jesus says then something remarkable, verse 29. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what about us? The evidence is still just as substantive, just as palpable, just as clear. We're not there, we're here. 2,000 years have passed. And Jesus promises special blessing to those who believe without seeing. If you're waiting for some sort of mathematical proof that Jesus rose from the dead, I can't give it to you. But the historical record is there for anyone to examine. It contains abundant evidence for those who choose to believe, and people who decide not to believe can always find reasons not to believe. But don't let your doubts keep you from Jesus. You can't remain neutral forever. You can bring your doubts to the empty tomb, but you need to choose. 
You can't stay on the fence. Either you believe or you don't. Today is Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. It's a wonderful day to make that choice. It's a great day to stop doubting and start believing. And we can be part of that. The Lord pronounced this final benediction on those who do not see and yet believe. And Jesus is saying, what a blessing it is to believe in Jesus, not because we've seen him, but because we have his written word, the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. And so we'll have great joy now, and we'll someday share in the likeness of his resurrection. In the words of Johnny Erickson Tada, who's a quadriplegic, brilliant painter and a great author, she says, I know the meaning of that now. It is the time after my death when I will be on my feet dancing. So let me ask you, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in honest-to-goodness, old-fashioned acts of God? It's a good question to ask. Most of us, I think, would immediately answer, well, yeah, I believe in miracles, and I would say the same. But if I were to ask you then, how many miracles have you seen? You may say something like, you know, I don't know. I kind of think all of life is a miracle. Or, you know, you might say, well, you know, I finished a term paper last night. That's a miracle. Um, both those things are examples of the English word miracle. But that's not what I'm asking when I ask, do you believe in miracles? I'm not thinking about the surprising events of life or the difficult project finally completed. By miracle, I mean those contrary to human possibility events that have no natural explanation. That kind of miracle. Sure, Dave, I believe in that kind of miracle. But by definition, that kind of miracle doesn't happen every day. They happen very rarely, in fact. And when they do happen, they're hard to believe, partly because they don't happen very often and partly because we can't explain them. Even in the Bible, that kind of miracle is not an everyday occurrence. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is that kind of miracle. It's totally unexplainable by natural means. Maybe why we don't talk about it very much except for Easter, we're not sure how it happened. The crucifixion we understand. The resurrection is another matter. Lots of people wear silver crosses around their neck, but you don't see very many little silver empty tombs. So ask again, do you believe in miracles? Especially this, do you believe in the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And in case you think you have to answer yes, just because you happen to be in church, let me put your mind at ease. If you answer no or I'm not sure, you're in good company. There are lots of people today who aren't sure whether they believe or not. There were lots of people on that first Sunday after the first Easter who weren't sure either. Folks like Peter, James, John, Matthew, Bartholomew, Simon the Zealot, and a man whose name has become synonymous with doubt, Thomas. But Thomas comes out and he says it, my Lord and my God. That's what it means to be a Christian. And you're not a Christian if you can't say it. 
On the one hand, it's a propositional statement. Jesus is Lord of the universe and God himself. In other words, there's content to the faith. Thomas believes. It's not just a feeling. He believes it. On the other hand, it's personal. He doesn't just say Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God. And he stakes his life on it. There's no greater profession of faith. This is where John has been trying to lead us. Until you see Jesus as my Lord and my God and not just a nice person and not just a Savior who kind of helps you get through the hard times in life and not just someone that you go to church for or you pray to when you're in trouble, this has to be the one you bow down to. Thomas speaks for us all. And Jesus is saying, as he was saying to Thomas, come to me. Bring your doubts, bring your questions, bring your concerns, bring your troubles, bring your sins, bring all those things you don't even want to talk about and you don't want anybody else to know about. Bring those. Bring them to me. It's all right to doubt, but don't let your doubts keep you away. Come to the empty tomb and see for yourself. When Thomas saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he exclaimed, my Lord and my God. That stands as one of the greatest testimonies given by any apostle. It's one of the highest professions of faith recorded in any of the Gospels. It is the climax of John's Gospel. And it comes from a man who had doubts. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you, and we confess our failure to remember the greatness of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus. Sometimes we act as people who think that our doubt is too great to overcome, and we don't hear the gospel, and so we disbelieve. Lord, we do believe Help our unbelief. Lord, if anyone here this morning is overwhelmed by life, overwhelmed by their suffering, overwhelmed by their pain and hurt, overwhelmed by their confusion, overwhelmed by their doubts, enable them to draw near to you so that you will draw near to them and they will believe once again. And so work in each of our hearts as we learn from you this winter to bring back the wanderer and draw us ever closer to the one who has risen from the dead and draw our wanderers ever closer to the one who rejoices to receive them. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.